The Secrets of Technology is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Technology. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Technology, where we discuss the technology news that's important to you from a uniquely Catholic point of view. And joining me today on the panel are Thomas Sanherho. Hey, Thomas. Hey, Dom. And Jack Barazzini. Hi, Jack. Hey, Dom. Uh, let's get right into it, because we got a lot to talk about here, and this is a very good topic, and uh, I forget which of us brought it up, but it's as soon as I heard it, I said, this is a great topic. And we're going to be talking today about how to set up your home network safely, securely, efficiently, all those other lees, and so that we are <laughs> we're we're using our technology to our best advantage to serve us. And so that's what we're getting into. You you may have a home network already. You probably in fact if you're listening to this, you I'm almost certain you do. You you probably have a internet provider that brings a cable of some sort into your home or a satellite dish on your roof or something like that and that connects to a device that's like a modem, and that may or may not either include inside the same box or outside it another box called a router. So, guess basically, what's the, what is the hardware that we're talking about? What are we talking about when we talk about a, a network? What's the hardware? Um, well, to start off, basically, what you're going to have is most of the time, if you're subscribing to your standard internet nowadays, you're going to be offered a modem and router all in one box by your ISP. And essentially what that is, is the modem is the device that brings in all the internet from a wired connection. And then the router is the part that's going to be broadcasting that out over Wi-Fi throughout your house. And my recommendation is um, you purchase your own modem and you purchase your own router separately from your ISP. That way you don't have to pay the leasing fees that they're going to add on to your subscription. Um, I know a lot of people, when you're signing up, they're going to, they push really hard to get you to pick up their systems they'll call like in-home wi-fi and it'll be an all-in-one box and you're going to end up paying like 15 to 30 dollars extra per month just to lease their hardware and usually it's hardware that's at least a year out of date if not more um and with a little bit of research you can get your own hardware it's going to be probably 150 for your modem up front and then 150 to 300 depending on what uh, wi-fi router package you're going with but it's going to be a better investment if you buy your hardware separately from your ISP and it's going to pay for itself in a year. Right. So yeah, yeah don't just, you're upfronting that cost a little bit, but you're in control of it and it's a better piece of equipment. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause I think about, <laughs> you guys are going to, you guys are going to uh, cringe when you hear this. I don't, I've had my current ISP for gosh, maybe 10 years. I think I have the same modem that they gave probably. me that. And yeah. so I probably need to get a new modem. Now I think, I think the uh, the topic of how to choose a modem, maybe we'll segregate that and come back to that in an, on another episode, just because that's a that's a big conversation in and of itself, Doxis and all that sort of thing. And you get you got to make sure you get the right modem that works with your internet provider and right. that sort of thing. So we want to. I was gonna say that's the biggest issue. You need to call yeah. your ISP first and say, right. hey, what what works with your your stuff? Right, right. And then so you buy it. <laughs> let's let's put that aside for the moment and and move a little further in why why would we want to separate the router and the modem what what benefit of that is there in that it just has to do with if one piece of hardware fails you're not going to lose everything all at once if your router dies you can replace that and not replace your modem and vice versa okay. um, you also get more flexibility like if you buy a modem i feel like we're at a point with technology now where you can buy a modem and it's going to be good for like you said, probably a decade, but you might want to change your Wi-Fi routers out more than that. Mm -hmm. And so that way you don't have to get a whole new system every time you want to change one part of that. Right. And to be fair, if you don't want to bother with the modem, you want to just get the modem from your provider and add your own Wi-Fi router. You can do that. Uh, there are ways to just shut off the, the router portion of your uh, combined box, which is what I normally do. Um, yes. Just because our ISP will not allow me to use my own modem. They are <laughs> very stodgy about that. Um, so they won't let me do it. So I have to use their router, but then I just shut off the Wi-Fi portion of the router and connect my own uh, Wi-Fi uh, 
or yeah, the Wi-Fi portion of the modem and use that my own Wi-Fi router yeah. from there. One of the benefits of turning off the 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 Wi-Fi that they give you, the Wi-Fi built into the modem, is some ISPs will also have public hotspots running off of your mo your mm -hmm. modem, and they mm -hmm. tell you it doesn't affect your bandwidth or it they, the people who are using it can't get into your network. But frankly, I just I'm paying for this service. I don't want other people using it. I don't, you know, I I just feel better turning that off and you know use somebody else's uh, modem for that sort of thing. Uh, all right. So I've got a I've got a my modem. We'll talk about you know we'll come back to that later. We got my router, a Wi-Fi router. Now not all routers routers aren't just Wi-Fi, right? I could run a wire out of the back of it and you run <clears> Ethernet <throat> in, which is what I do. Uh, here I have I use both the the uh, Wi-Fi my phones and my laptops and iPads and that sort of thing. But I, I run a cable. Actually, I run it to a switch, but that's not that's outside our discussion. But I, I run it into the back of my iMac because I want higher speed because that's a big difference, right? The mm -hmm. speed you get over Ethernet is much higher than you're going to get over Wi-Fi, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, Absolutely. that is correct. Yeah. Yeah, I have critical pieces of equipment that I need on a solid, stable connection that's reliable and fast. And so, you know, I, I run a server that's a gaming server that I have friends from around the world that connect to. And I that's definitely hardwired into uh, my router and my computer. Also, I like I just like to have it on that uh, right. higher speed access. Yeah. And I think that goes into whole the whole um, when you're planning out how you're going to be laying out your network. You want to make sure you have things like your backup system, if you have one or like a rated array of hard drives for storing all your media. Mm -hmm. You want to all that to be in the same room with your modem and router so they can all be wired in. And then the Wi-Fi is going to be for things like your phones and your iPads and your laptops where you want to have decent speeds, but you're not necessarily worried about la uh, latency to a high degree or the reliability of the connection like 24-7. Yeah, one of the things to think about, too, is when you're bringing Ethernet into your, or I'm sorry, Internet into your house, where you want that to come. Because mm -hmm. if you're going to be using Wi-Fi, you want to make sure that that Wi-Fi reaches the far corners. And we mm -hmm. can talk about mesh and other things later. But you want to think about this. What room do I want my Wi-Fi router to be in? And ideally, you want it to be in as central a location as possible. I know that some people have, especially like in new, new build construction, they have uh, network closets, which is a new thing in homes, but companies have all the time, and so they and it's centrally located in the house, so that there's equal distance from the router out to all the parts of the property. That that's that might be a little extravagant, but it's worth thinking about. Where do you where's where's is it most important for you to have a strong signal? Like I have mine. Uh, the the guys can see on my uh, my camera here. Right above my head, right here above my right. head, is my, my router right behind me, uh, high speed, and it's a short distance to the, you know, by wire, all that sort of stuff. Um, so think about where in the house you, you want it. I, ideally, do, is it better to have it higher up? In my experience, I know that this is mostly anecdotal, but in my experience, if you are in a two-story house or more you want it to have it at least be on the second floor and as central as possible because that way it's going to be radiating radiating out towards the different rooms in the house and okay. in general when you're setting up a wi-fi router it's going to be closer to the ground then you're not going to be like putting it up like 11 feet high in your room right and so if you're on a ground level room and you put it down in the corner most a lot of that radi the radiation out from the signal is going to be going into the ground so you want to be on a second floor if you have that option right and probably not a basement is because no it's <laughs> yeah definitely yeah. not a basement and pay attention to your walls too this is one thing that i think a lot of people forget um if you have concrete walls or if you have uh, thick walls or walls that have metal lining in them. Old mm -hmm. walls. Uh, yeah, yeah. Old houses you, are really bad. You, man, that's that's our house. Our house is like all, you know, cement uh, cinder blocks. So because yep. Florida, right? So yes. you got to avoid the hurricanes. <laughs> but it's death for any kind of electronic signal. Right. Also, make sure when you're setting it up that if you have fluorescent lighting in your house and you have a lot of conduit, you're not you don't want to put your routers really close to that because all that electronic interference is really going to cut down on your signal strength. Mm -hmm. I've had that um, where I work. We've had an issue with that when we're putting in the access points for our routers, um, trying to figure out the best spot in the ceiling to put them in so they're not being interfered by the fluorescent lights and the AC conduit. Yep, yep. 
Yeah, one of the things, speaking of like uh, uh, Thomas, you were saying, I used to live in a rectory that was over 100 years old. I mean, at this point, it's, I think, 150 years old. And so it had all the metal lathe in the walls that the, mm-hmm. like the horsehair plaster was attaching to. And I couldn't get a signal like outside my room. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was like a Faraday cage for, for exactly. Wi-Fi. That's exactly so, what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it is. So if you live in an old house, it's something to think about. If it that hasn't been renovated, you know, that that's another right. thing to think about. Uh, you might actually need to do Ethernet and that sort of thing. Now, I, w- I will say, you, you know, you joke about having a rack at home, but uh, there is a whole subreddit dedicated to it. It's called Home Lab. Oh. And it's all about people that have created their rack setup at home and oh, man. most of them are system architects and they just you know they see the problems with the stuff that's going on at home and they want to put it together that way yeah <laughs> I, I i'm tempted to, to go check out that subreddit but it might be dangerous <laughs> i will also say um if you're intimidated by running ethernet cable in your house it's really not as bad as you think it's going to mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. like i'm not any sort of certified electrician at all and i've wired up an entire building with ethernet and it's really not that hard to do so if yeah. you have rooms in your house especially if you have an older house you're not going to have a lot of network drops that are going to be in convenient locations and so if you just get the you know the rj45 termination cables um they even make like the easy clip on cables it's really not that hard to do yourself yeah I've done it. And you can buy conduit, like the baseboard running conduit that just sticks to the wall and all that sort of thing. I've done all that. Yeah, it's it's pretty easy, pretty straightforward. And you can get it all at Home Depot. That's a great thing. It's not like yeah. you have to go to a specialty store or even right. order it off a line, online yeah. or something. You just go yep. to Home Depot and you can find it all there. All right, let's talk about the the software end of this, the configuration of things. Let's First, how do I get into my router? How do I access its its controls? What are the options here? That's really going to depend on your router. Most of the time, it's going to give you a 192.168.whatever address that you're going to punch in as soon as you've, as soon as you've plugged it up to your modem and everything. And you in can your get web in browser. There. Yeah. Right, exactly. And whatever computer you have, you're connected up to that. And you're going to have your default password, which you definitely want to change. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. You always, that's like the first thing you want to do is change your default password. Because um, everybody knows with, what it is. Everybody on the internet knows exactly. it. And they can access your network. Right. You want to change that. Um, and that's usually how you get to it. A lot of newer router systems, and we can talk about this when we talk about the mesh Wi-Fi, but like Eero and the different systems like that, they'll have an app where you can just pull it up on your phone and it's really straightforward to connect. So I feel like even in the last five or 10 years, it's gotten much, much easier to start oh, yeah. configuring your network from scratch to be mm-hmm. secure. Yeah. Uh, we didn't really talk about you know, recommendations for routers. But, you know, I, I remember back in the days of the Linksys, uh, what is it, the WRT45, mm-hmm. uh, 45G, or well, I forget whatever it was. But yeah, having to access the, 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 the web page in order to make any changes. And it was, it was, could be confusing and it uses a lot of language and U, UDP and uh, UPnP mm-hmm. and all these things. And the, re- the regular user is going to look at that and go, I wash my hands of that. I, I don't, mm. I don't know what, <laughs> what any of that is, uh, but you're right, Jack. It's they've, they've learned that these are now in people's homes for people who are not techies, who don't know the, the lingo and they're making it more straightforward. Even like not just the app ones, but even the ones that have web pages. And again, how that works is, is when you set up your router, you could plug a, a cable, you could plug an Ethernet cable directly into it. And I think sometimes now you can even, there's still a, a kind of Wi-Fi, a point-to-point Wi-Fi that you can access. And you, you they give you a, a number, so you open up your browser, you type it in, 192.168.1. That's an internal, 192.168.1. something is an internal network number. That means whatever's inside the router. Uh, there's also 10.10 or, uh, as well. And you pull up a web page that is being served by the router, and that's where you can do all your configuration. Um, what couple of recommendations with the password. So once you change it, uh, write it down on a label and stick it on the uh, in, in, in indelible ink that's not going to fade. That's another one I've run into. And mm-hmm. stick it on the bottom of the router or on the top or whatever so that when you need to access the router and the modem, do it to your modem too because that also has a password, so that it's there. <laughs> So mm-hmm. you're not hunting for it. You're not, what did I change the password to? I mean, obviously you should put it in your password manager as well. So access, so accessing your router, that's where you'll configure it. What kind of configuration do we have to be concerned about in our router? What kind of things should we be thinking of changing? Mostly it's obviously first two things, change your password, 
I, I recommend changing the username too, if you can, uh, mm-hmm. just because that way if admins, not a user in there, uh, they can't brute force it. Yep. Um, but then you want to go through and you want to look at the settings that are related to how people connect. Uh, so there, there's a couple of different choices here and you have to make the decision on how much work you want to do. <laughs> right. Because uh, that's really what it comes down to. Right. So we can, we can blacklist items, which is to say you pick an item that you don't want to allow on your network. Or you can whitelist items. That means that nothing can get on your network unless you specifically said that it can get on your network. Um, and I'm a proponent of the whitelist. I think the whitelist is a great option, uh, especially if you are in if you're paying attention to all of the different things that connect. But I I use a blacklist personally just because I have eight kids with multiple devices and. <laughs> yeah. If anything goes wrong, any burps with them, they are suddenly off the network and then I have to go figure out which one it is and keep a list of all the numbers. So, yeah, I advocate whitelist if you can get away with it. But blacklist is easier. I I have like several hundred things on here. We're between uh, all the home kit stuff and right. printers and iPads and all that sort of stuff. Maybe not several hundred, but close to 100. It, wh- how do I know? Like when you say whitelist versus blacklist, how do I what am I looking at to determine this is allowed on it, it. There's a number, right? That, mm-hmm. that there, is specific to each device. A Mac address. And mm-hmm. it's the, and now don't confuse this with like, it's Macintosh. not a computer. Yeah. Mac. Not Macintosh. It's, yeah. Right. It's, it's a, it's an address that, uh, it's the physical device address of the particular item that's trying to connect to the network. So if you've ever wondered how, uh, just kind of brief network, uh, uh, lingo here, if you ever wonder how you can, be on the same network as a bunch of other computers and send a message out and have that message come back to your network and get to your computer. This is basically how it works. Your computer has a unique identifier that when it sends out the information that I, that identifier gets attached to your information. And then that information packet with your unique identifier gets attached to your IP address, which gets sent out to the foreign place. That place recognizes your IP address and sends back a response with your packet included so that it comes back to your machine specifically. Right. And it's good to know that the Mac address is like specifically tied to a single piece of hardware, whereas the IP address is something that you can change pretty right. easily. You can change a Mac address. It's hard. Um, and that's not something you're going to be worried about with normal communications, but your IP address is something that's fluid for the most part. And usually there's one IP address for your whole network in a home situation. Most generally, you'll have one IP address that applies to the whole everything that's uh, connecting to your modem. Right. One range. Yes. And then uh, Mac. So Mac is just like a fingerprint. And and literally and ideally, I I know that sometimes it's not literally true, but there's some sometimes odd things happen and things overlap. But ideally, every single thing that can connect to the Internet has a unique Mac address. Yes. Every every. Mm -hmm light bulb every phone every you know all 10 billion phones it all individual so that's the interesting thing to to think about and so yeah so you can blacklist which is to say anything that isn't that isn't on my list here should not be allowed on the network only uh, or anything how does that work nope. so there's other white... way around other way around okay. all right blacklist anything that's is... not on my list is is that's whitelist every yeah blacklist is everything you can get on except for these things i don't like this one i don't like that one i don't okay. like that one Whitelist is only these particular things can get on. Okay, okay, and uh, yeah, blacklist is pretty is like the default. That's how most systems come set up. Right. Is anything get on as long as they have the password for the Wi-Fi or they have right. a physical mm-hmm. connection through a cable. And if you notice that your neighbors are, if you if you're if you're looking at this and you happen to see that there are eight devices on, and you know for a fact that there are only seven devices in your house, go check the MAC addresses and then just ban that last one. And right. when somebody comes from your house to complain to you that they, that they got kicked off, then you can go, oh, well, it must have been that thing. Or nobody ever talks to you about it. And you're like, OK, somebody was <laughs> on my network and I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, my neighbor was surfing right. my network. Mm-hmm. I will say um, that there's a lot of newer systems that make the whole uh, whitelisting and blacklisting a lot easier because they give you the specific device names. And yeah. like yes. with the Eero system from Amazon... I have mine personally set up where I have a, I have it on a blacklist, but if a new device joins that has not previously joined the network, it will give me an alert. So yeah. I'm not specifically banning anything, but if anything joins that I don't want it to be on there and it's not been on there before, I can block it. So right. I feel like that's a good middle ground between 
allowing everything and not only allowing what I specifically set up beforehand. And we should mention Wi-Fi security. Most routers these days, all I would say all routers these days come set up to be secured with a password so that you can only Mm -hmm. get on the Wi-Fi network with a password. And does it matter what you name your network? You see all those funny ones like FBI yeah. van and all that sort of not silly things. But what do you think? Is it does it matter what you name it? Do, should I be obscure so that other people don't know? Like, uh, should I put Bettinelli House on it? I, I would not do that. OK, I would be obscure, be a little obscure with it. And it's it's because that is one thing that is publicly transmitted. So if someone were malicious against you particularly and they were driving right. up and down your street and they saw, you know, uh, tranquility or, you know, that's one of the name of my network right i'm going to change now that i've said it <laughs> but, uh, but uh but you know that if, if they if they saw that they, they wouldn't know that that was you but if they saw your name or your address or something like that then, right then they would and that 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 would allow them to be more directed with an attack um you know there's lots of things that could come from that so yes right. i would be a little obscure with that just do what i do and make it an obscure sci-fi reference from the 70s exactly. going to get it anyways. <laughs> there you go i'm trying to think of an obscure one like something out of space 1999 or something yeah that, that's yes. a nice 70s sci-fi uh all right then other considerations some some routers they they still allow you to separate you have like separate networks because different devices communicate on different radio frequencies 5 gigahertz 2.4 gigahertz the newer one is 5 but some home automation stuff still communicates at 2.4. And there's the option to make separate networks. Does it matter or should I just leave it as is? Absolutely matters. Okay. Um, and I'll give you an example of why. Uh, there, there are still plenty of devices that are modern devices that don't use a 5, uh, a five gig network. So I, I would definitely default to 2.4, except in the cases where you know you have 5 gigahertz items. And then also, if you are using a single router that's servicing your entire house, but you have a five gig uh, device on the other side of the house, it is not going to receive as good a signal as on a 2.4 gig network. So okay. you, you want to, if, if anything's going to use a five gig wireless, uh, it needs to be really close to the device. Because it's still, it's great, but it's not the good range. Not as the good. range. Yeah. yeah, right. And there's a fall off. So as you get further and more things are in the way, the fall off of speed and bandwidth is greater with five gigahertz than with 2.4 gigahertz. Mm -hmm. So if you try to use five gigahertz on the other side of the house, you're going to get on a five gigahertz device, you're going to get worse bandwidth than if you use the 2.4 gigahertz with a five gigahertz device. Mm -hmm. Uh, And is there there's also something about where uh, the network slows down to the slowest device anyway. Right. Is, Is that true? Where the the band the five gigahertz of the I've heard that it it can be but I wouldn't on rely on it. Yeah. Okay. yeah, it depends on it's it's you can't do anything with your router for that. That's okay. going to depend on the device. And I have I have a couple of devices that wanted the five G. If they if they could find it, they wanted the five gig. Right. And uh and they could find it, but they were not communicating with it very well. <laughs> <laughs> and I should point out because it could be confusing when we talk about five gigahertz. That's separate from five G. That like Verizon. In your that phone, that's you mean that's that not Wi Fi. <laughs> I was trying so hard not to say it, and then no. it slipped. I was like, "Oh man!" <laughs> no, no, no. I would have said it anyway because it is it is confusing the the terminology that they they call yeah. it. They mean fifth generation, you know, uh, cell phone mm-hmm. carrier, not five gigahertz. This two separate things. Uh, all right, other considerations. Um, port management. Do we have to worry about managing the ports you know open ports i've heard about open ports and that can let in malware and viruses right what do i got to think about here i think if you're just having a basic home network and you have your security set up correctly you don't need to think too hard about that um obviously it's going to get more complicated if you're adding in switches and depending on what kind of services you're connecting to but i think in general if you're just using a standard router and home uh modem you're not going to need to be too worried about that you need you need to make sure your antivirus on your computer is set up and your ports on your computer mm-hmm. are shut down um but from a network perspective unless you're doing something more advanced you don't need to be too worried about the, the default, ports on your router the right. default should be yep. fine okay yeah if if you are running anything that someone from outside is going to connect to so if you're planning on running a server um 
then you do want to be, you, you want to learn about this. This is something that you really need to pay attention to and, yeah. and work at, uh, especially if you're going to have a pass through. Like uh, I use a, a website called no IP that allows me to have a website without knowing the static address at my house. So I don't have to mm-hmm. pay my ISP extra for a business license so that I get a static IP for my house and everything. Uh, and so I, no IP just kind of, assigns it you know and checks it and makes sure that it's updated and then it can pass through but that means that i have to make sure that my ports are open for that and that's one area where i do use a whitelist where only the ports that i need open for that server are open um so you we can set up guest networks sometimes is that worthwhile setting up a guest network I honestly think it's more hassle than it's worth. I think you should just be aware enough of your network that the people coming into your house, if they need to access your Wi-Fi, they're going to ask you for the password. You're going to help them set it up. I know most routers and modems have that guest network ability, but it's one more hole that could be poked in your system. So I feel like it's better just to know who's actually connecting to your network rather than setting up some sort of wide open guest network. Right, right. I'll agree with that generally, but I will say that the um, the Orbi uh, mesh network uh, that I have at my house uh, on the app, I pull up the app, I open up the guest network, it opens it up for 30 minutes to allow people to connect, and then it will ask me after 30 minutes whether or not I want to keep the network open. So Ooh. it's you know it's good because it bothers me. That's yeah. I, I really like the fact that it's going to bother me every once in a while to make right. to remind me, hey, this thing's still open. <laughs> I think that's probably a good segue into the fact that pretty much anyone I know nowadays, I would recommend a mesh network system to them because Mm -hmm. it allows so much more granularity of control and it's just so easy. So you don't even really have to think about it. Like I just recently set up my mother-in-law with the Eero system and it's, it's just so much easier. It lets you know when devices are connected. It gives you like a weekly antivirus uh, scan and it gives you a, a log of everything that has gone through and it's just a lot easier to maintain. Yeah, I agree. I, I have the, I've had an Eero for a bit. I've talked about the Eero's, I think a pick of the week before, and I had so much trouble getting, you know, to the other side of, the, of my house, which is not a very large house, uh, good and good signal. And I, I finally just went out, got the Eero. And th- what happens is you have a base station that connects to the, the modem. And then you have uh, repeaters essentially that mm-hmm. are around the house and, and devices seamlessly it's it's um, the technology is amazing it's, it happens all behind the scenes and it's amazing engineering but seamlessly you move from one to the next to the next as you walk away and you don't lose your signal ideally and and all these other things and it's it's really amazing and it's so useful and but but even beyond just the ability to extend the network out the features that they're building into these modern routers of, of various sorts i have a profile set up so all my kids are on a kids profile so that at a particular time at night, their internet access is off until the morning, you know, and That's awesome. and, mm-hmm. and then I can also block, I can put ad blocking on theirs, uh, you know, at a higher level and uh, all sorts of content blocking so that I can have for them. I also put all of my smart home stuff on its own profile with certain mm-hmm. restrictions as well. And so if I ever get into a situation where something in my home automation has gone wonky, I could just shut the internet off for all home automation, which would be really almost a disaster, but I could. And then, uh, it, and it's not going to affect my, my computer and, and my phone, you know, that sort of stuff. So uh, the the features that they have available are really awesome these days. Right. It's also, I really like with the Eero, um, how you can look at your network, even if you're across the country, because the app is still going to communicate with your specific system. So if you're right. out of town, you can still make sure that everything is working mm-hmm. how it should be on your network and no one is poking in there. Right, right. Yep. And and if you can't get to access it and your wife has called you and said, I can't get online and you can't access it, like, well, that's not, that's probably not the Euro. It's probably the internet connection. Yeah, or right. Along those lines. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it, it is really amazing. And you can turn things off. You can access things. You can kick things off the network, right, from anywhere that you have internet access. Uh, we've talked about Amazon Sidewalk before, but we should bring it up again. Amazon, which owns Eero, so I'm kind of interested whether there's any backdoor elements of this, but that's a whole nother, that's, we don't know. But if you have an Echo or any other Amazon device, as well as Tile, um, Ring, um, the, the Ring cameras, some other things like that, 
they are all part of this thing called Amazon Sidewalk, which is they're a it's a kind of mesh network in the sense of it's designed to set up a, a cloud of internet connectivity for devices, not for people to browse the web, but for devices so that your neighbors, say your neighbor has a ring camera on the edge of the, of the property, like between your house and their house, and their Wi-Fi router is just a little too far, but your, say, uh, Echo is fairly close. It will and, and gives a stronger signal. It will it'll hang on to that one and get connectivity that way instead of through its own router and that sort of stuff. And that's the idea. Or if a tile tracker walks by your front of your house, it it gives its location to tile through your echoes or your rings and that sort of stuff. The, Amazon assures us it's completely private, that there's no way anything could possibly go wrong. Uh, but. We'll have the I'll put a link again in this week's show notes, just mm -hmm. like I did last week of how to turn that off in the Alexa app. Mm -hmm. And I think the major, major issue is the fact that they made it opt out and not opt in. They right. Kind of yes. turned it on. And I believe that they're really banking on most people not even checking that kind of news and just not mm -hmm. even right. thinking to check that. Right. I turned it off. The first time I heard about this months ago, I went in, turned it off so that it was preemptively off before the mm -hmm. system went live. And I checked again after the system went live just to make sure, because sometimes, you know, for some strange reason, the flips, the, the switch flips <laughs> when the system goes live and you have to turn it off again. Not mm -hmm. this one, but I've seen that happen with other things. So mm -hmm. that's worth double checking. But uh, yes, that's, that's one of those uh, one of those shadow tactics, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah dark, dark patterns. Pattern. Dark patterns. <laughs> Uh, any other uh, any other concerns that we need to think about for setting up our home network? The only other thing I can think of is if you're setting up smart devices that are going to be either outside the home or on the edge of your home, you want to make sure that the security protocols for those are locked down. Um, like if you have ed um, ring cameras like outside your house, they're going to be connected over Wi-Fi. And that goes back to the Amazon sidewalk thing. But you want to make sure that everything is set up with those so those don't end up being an inadvertent backdoor into your network. Mm. I personally would recommend if you have anything like that, like security cameras, that you hardwire those in because they're going to be physically outside mm -hmm. of the home. But again, that's also a matter of the difficulty that's involved yeah. with that. So just make sure you're aware of what your smart devices are doing, are doing if you're placing them outside the home specifically. Generally, I mean, as long as you have wi the Wi-Fi password you know, security setup, I'd almost feel like have, hanging an Ethernet cable off of the back of one of those would be more of a security hole, wouldn't it? Rather than if they're on Wi-Fi, because then someone just plug the Ethernet cable into a laptop or something. I think I think it depends on the device. It's really a case by case basis because okay. um, some of them, some security cameras are essentially Wi-Fi repeaters if they're connected to other security cameras. Oh, like, you know, okay. there's some ring devices where you have your Wi-Fi camera and you can get a whole network of those and it sends the signal out to the other ones. Oh. So you want to make sure that you're aware of how that's working before you're setting it up. So gotcha. just to gotcha. be thinking about that. Yes. Just, yeah. just know how it works. Right. Just, mm -hmm. yeah. I'll give one tip, one, yeah. one little trick that I learned. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, you have a list of IP addresses internally that you can use for your devices. So if you have a network printer that's giving you problems because you put it on your Wi-Fi and drops the Wi-Fi and whatever, um, you can actually assign it a static IP. So if you go into the, the settings on the printer uh, and move through it, just give it a static IP that's a higher number because generally what you're allotted at, at your house is about 255 addresses. Um, so if you just think about it, like we were talking about with the 192.168.1, that's the stuff that's owned by the, uh, the ISP. Those last three digits go from 0 to 255, and you can't touch 0 or 255, so there's a little bit of space in between. But if you pick a number like right in the middle and assign it to your printer, then your printer will have a quote-unquote static IP that's probably not ever going to get used by anybody else and it's not going to interfere with any of the other stuff that's going on but you'll be able to connect to it from your uh computer a lot better if you wire it directly into your router yeah the way the way it works is in general your the router is assigning ips dynamically just here you take one you take one you take one take this 32 44 and it just hands them out like candy whereas uh, you you know and those can always change so your phone might have a different internal ip every day but like you said thomas the if you 
if you assign a static IP, and you, uh, it's just a matter of just putting it in there, 192.168.1.145, say, that's going to be its IP, and it won't change, and that can sometimes, like you mentioned, fix access problems. I would also say, um, if you're looking at setting static IPs, a good tool to use is the angry IP scanner. Um, you put mm. that on your network and then you put in your range. So like if you're on the 192.1.168, you put in 192.1.168.0192.168.1.255 and it will scan every single IP address in that range and it will tell you what device is on what IP. So you can pick out the specific IPs you want to use and know that they're free. Oh, awesome. That's a Windows app? Yeah, it is. So okay. I'll send you the link. We can put that in the show notes. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, looks like they're trying to, I, I just went to their website, looks like they're looking to port it to Mac. So that, oh, it just says it works on Windows, Mac, and Linux. So, um, but they're they're uh, looking for help from uh, Mac programmers. So, awesome. Cool. That's a good, good one. All right. I think uh, if you have any questions, uh, listeners, if you have any questions about home networking that we could help address in a future episode, please send them to us to technology at sqpn.com. And like I said, we'll talk about routers and modems, uh, the hardware more specifically in the future and and get into that a little bit more. Uh, But uh, hopefully this is a good beginning to to talk about home networking. Uh, Before we move on, I want to talk about our patrons. I want to thank them for their support. Their support makes it possible for us to create the secrets of technology. And I want to thank our patrons, including Andrew G., Aaron M., John S., Joseph S., and Adam L. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of technology and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So our headlines. So I love this one. Just this is a this is one where I I'm kind of rooting for the government in this one the uh, the the uh, the feds <laughs> uh, the the FBI revealed just recently that they they arrested or helped arrest 800 criminals worldwide and they did this a global sting operation because they set up a they backed set up this it does some details a company that was making. Um, encrypted communications devices on the dark web for criminal enterprises. I mean, this is like out of a movie or a TV show, like 24, you know, it's super and, awesome. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so all of these criminals all this time are using these, these, these super secret phone and communication devices that the FBI handed to them, which meant that they could read every single thing they were typing into it. This is, this is kind of cool. Now, just so you know, they, they also, they, they, picked a shill they like got a guy yes that was like shady but not really awful and and they convinced him that this was a way for him to make money like they they had an undercover agent convince him this was a way for him to make money and so when they but right before they closed this case i have to say this they told him you might want to turn yourself in because we're about to do this and you're about to be the most unpopular man in the world. <laughs> no kidding. Oh, man. Talk about witness, witness protection. protection. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. it's it's I, this is amazing. This is such a it's such a cool. I think the, the two cool things here are first off, the technology is really neat. Like um, like a look through the technology is really interesting. They were able to gather so much data about stuff that was going on uh, on the sly. And and it, it goes to show that, you know, even in highly technical organizations that are using a lot of technology, if they're not running their own, own cybersecurity operations internally, um, they're at risk of this kind of stuff happening. Right. Uh, so, so you know, if, you, if you're interested in criminal enterprise, uh, you might want to put in a resume as a cybersecurity expert <laughs> <laughs> because they could probably use it at the moment. Uh, but then also the fact that it's so international was really cool, that there were mm. a lot of countries that were... Uh, capable of running this and keeping it secret the entire time. That was really, really impressive. Well, that was the most interesting thing about it is how they were able to keep it secret. And I think it really just shows like all these devices that we have, like people don't realize how much data you were just leaking on a daily mm-hmm. basis out of all the devices you own. And yeah, this shows like what can be traced based on what devices you're using. Right. So they sold 12,000 devices to 300 criminal syndicates in more than 100 com- countries over the past three years. So basically what happened is, is there was a Canadian uh, encryption service called Phantom Secure that got shut down because they were criminal enterprise. They were helping criminals. And so 
the FBI noticed, hey, well, there's a there's space in the market now for <laughs> for this sort of thing. Let's fill it. So they went to one of the guys who used to work for Phantom Secure. That's this, the guy that we're talking about. And he was the face of their new Anom, it's called. And so they decided to they started selling these. And it was a cell phone that had been stripped of all normal functions. And the only working app was a, a disguised as the calculator. And but when you entered a code, you could send messages and photos with end to end encryption, except there was a man in the middle who was <laughs> intercepting all that encrypted stuff. And yeah, it's one of the things that gets me with this story, though, is, this, OK, so they've burned their their whole thing, right? This, oh, they can't do this mm-hmm. anymore. Or can yeah. they? Well, they, they can always restart it, right? Well, but, I wonder, but, though, yeah. like if if they would end up shutting this down, you know, arresting all the guys and shut down the whole thing if they don't already have something else in the, in the works or that we're working, I well, wonder. I'm sure they probably do. I, there was a lot of talk about why they stopped because, yeah. you know, you're, you're getting live information. You can just keep using it to stop crime. Right. But yep. what, what re- it really ends up happening is that there had to be a warrant attached to this and the warrant has to be terminal. It can't just be an open permanent warrant for them to surveil right. because, you know, that would be all sorts of bad for yeah, all sorts true. of reasons. <laughs> yes. uh, so, so, you know, there had to be a, a closure to this warrant. And so there, the, nobody's saying it directly, but the thought process is that the warrant must've been coming to an end. And so they had to, you know, quickly say, okay, well let's shut down and let's run on the information that we have right now. Let's make all the arrests we can. It'll bust them up enough that maybe we can step in again and, and do right. it again somewhere. <laughs> right. Criminals aren't getting any smarter. And they and they need to talk to each other, and so it's gonna someone will step into it again, I guess. All right, so so that's that that story. That's that's a good one. All right, so another story this this week. Uh, last week, you may have noticed that a big chunk of the internet was off, <laughs> as seems to happen Reddit, a lot no. these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Some big parts of the internet: the New York Times, the Guardian, Twitch, Reddit, British government's homepage. Why not? Uh, well, it turns out it was. One of these content delivery networks called this one was called Fastly that had an outage that was not malicious. It wasn't ransomware or virus or hacked or anything like that, or at least is what they're what they're saying. What happened was there was a, a bug in the software and someone made a change to their server setting and that triggered the bug, you know, tripped the bug. And that caused everything to go offline for about an hour. And they said they were we were back up in about an hour, they said. But on the Internet, an hour is forever. It's a long time. <laughs> It was a long time. That's a lot of sysadmins and server admins running around with their hair on fire, trying to figure out why their their company isn't, you know, on the Internet at the moment. But uh, it it's interesting primarily because it shows how fragile things really are. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. We are really codependent uh, on 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 each other and that there are these a lot of these very important pipelines that a lot of the internet sits on, like there's, there are just a handful of these places that run a huge chunk of the internet. And you take out a couple of these and a lot of this stuff is going to go offline. And that's, that's concerning. Yeah. There's redundancy, but there's only so much redundancy. Um, I hadn't heard of Fastly before, but the fact is you probably haven't heard a lot of these companies. There's reasons you haven't heard of these companies. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah right. They, they they don't need to advertise themselves to us. <laughs> yes, that's we're not right. the customer. Yeah, and when and as we see, and when we hear their name, that's usually for something bad. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the interesting thing here is like the the gag is that it was caused by one customer changing a setting. But when you're talking about one customer of this company, you're talking about Reddit or right. Twitch or <laughs> you know the New York Times. It's it's not a it's not like you know Joe in his. Uh, in Just his blog. basement apartment in New York. Yeah, no. <laughs> right. And that's the that was the funny thing about the way I've seen this story reported is that a lot of it has been like one customer changed his setting. And the way that reads is like some dude went on his personal website to his WordPress settings and like right. clicked a checkbox. And it's like, that's not that's not really what happened. But yeah. it is still interesting to see just like, you know, these unanticipated things that end up happening. They can knock out a lot more than you think they would. I went on my AWS and uploaded some of my backup files and took down half the internet. Probably not what happened. Yeah, nah. <laughs> well, and, and I and have to say that, you know, we, we, we do talk about the internet being down for an hour is a big deal, right? Um, you know, these big portions of the internet. But for Fastly to be able to figure out what the problem was 
and yeah. then deploy a solution within an hour is amazing. Uh, yeah. Because this is obviously this is something that they had tested that they had put out live because it worked in a, in a test environment. And so the the guys that they have troubleshooting at their uh, at their facilities, kudos to you. You deserve mm-hmm. a gold star because this was a, yeah. a really, really impressive recovery. Definitely. Yeah. As someone who has accidentally taken down a company network for half a day, <laughs> I know what kind of situation that is, and it is not fun to be in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So uh, here's one. I don't know how concerned we need to be, but it's something to think about. Uh, it's a story. Uh, Microsoft has warned that there are PDFs online that have malware in them that can steal data from you when you load it. Uh, and it's called, um, it's a technique they call SEO poisoning that is, uh, well, I'm not sure exactly what they're doing, but what they said is the attackers are using thousands of PDFs filled with keywords and links. So that's the SEO, search engine optimization that redirect un- the unwary across multiple sites toward one that installs malware, right? So they upload a PDF that has thousands of keywords, hoping that search engines will direct people searching for these things to them. And then when they get to that, it will redirect them to a site that downloads malware. I think that's kind of what they're saying. If I'm, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think I'm too far off. Yeah. And it's that's, called... That's pretty close. Solar Marker Jupiter is what, they, is what they're calling it. But uh, what can we do to protect ourselves from this i mean is it is there is 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 it just make sure we have good malware protection on our systems or is there or is there something we can do to prevent being directed to this stuff i think it's a twofold thing i think it's make sure your malware is your malware protection is up to date but also make sure you're not clicking on just random links like if Mm -hmm. i guess a good example would be if you're a student and you're looking for your textbook and you don't feel like paying 300 dollars for your textbook don't click on some random link that you found on the internet, five pages down in Google, because it's probably not going to be legit. Right. Yep. Right. That's a good one. Or yeah. or right at the top of Google. That's the yeah. other one to avoid is that that very first one or two things that return. Yeah. Those can be dangerous too. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. That people who's gaming the system. Yeah. And it's also, um, I know, I don't know if this is specifically what's happening with this, but there's a technique that people have used in the past to push malware with PDFs is that if you put all your text in uh, the same color as the background of your PDF and then have it activated that way, you can't physically see what's going on, but it's going to pull up all that information still, even though you can't visually see it it's still uh, in, the, in the file. So the, the thing is to be careful when, uh, when clicking on .doc or .pdf uh, search results in the, that show up mm-hmm. in search results. You know, yes. Make sure they're at least on a, on a site that you recognize, for one thing. Like if it's on a you know, a uh, journal like the Lancet or, you know, like one of these big JSTOR or something like that, these research sites where you expect to find people. Right. That sort of thing. If, it, if it's got a Russian uh, <laughs> or uh, Chinese TL, yeah, <laughs> top level domain, then <laughs> yeah. you should maybe be wary of it. This is kind of similar to the situation you'd run into in the early 2000s where you'd go on LimeWire to download a song. And if you found the song you wanted and it was two kilobytes, you knew that's probably not the song you want. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I would say also be more, de- be more descriptive with your, um, with your queries because mm-hmm. uh, Google and really all the search engines now they're designed to take a query. They're designed to take an actual question. So yeah. if you write out a whole question, it's more likely that you're not going to get this kind of uh, cheesed SEO uh, return. You're going to get a, a legit return that has, has a lot of hits and has explanations of its uh, information rather than just mm-hmm. one or two words from it. I always forget like that the search engines have been designed for people who type in, you know, what time is the show going to be at? <laughs> they exactly. literally type that mm-hmm. in as opposed to, you know, a Black Widow movie uh, showtime near right. me. <laughs> Yeah. You don't have to think like a computer with the search engine. Yeah. Just talk to it like it's a person. I now have to unlearn all of those behaviors right. I've learned over the past 30 years. <laughs> uh, so, and then our last uh, headline, just to mention, we, we talked about this before, uh, Apple podcast subscriptions, they're now live. There there are some big media companies that are offering subscription, podcast subscriptions. Uh, and one of the things that I want to mention from the StarQuest point of view is we have no plans at this time to offer subscription podcasts we we have what because one of the problems is is a with this 
the subscription means that you can only access the podcast through Apple Podcasts app. And we don't want to limit our audience to just people who use the Apple Podcasts app, Spotify, uh, Google, Google Play Music or Google Podcasts. I think it's, it is now, you know, all these other systems, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio. We want you to be able to access our podcast wherever. But also uh, the prime benefits, it seems to me, for a lot of these podcasts is they they have advertising normally. And so the the subscription ones strip out the advertising and they're going to offer you some bonus episodes. Well, we don't do advertising. We we sometimes have sponsors mm-hmm. that we mention, but they're not ads. And so we and we are supported by the donations of our patrons. And so that leads me to another thing, which is um, Apple takes 30% in the first year and 15% for each year afterwards. We do Patreon. Patreon does not take anywhere near that much. So more of your dollar goes to support StarQuest. But also when you subscribe through Apple Podcasts, your relationship is with Apple, not with us. And we prefer to have a close relationship with our patrons, that this is a, a symbiotic relationship that we have, uh, not, not a business one. So, but what do you guys think of this Apple podcast subscriptions idea? I'm not a particularly big fan of it just because I feel like it takes away from the kind of grassroots feel that a lot of podcasts have had. And what the nice thing has been about podcasts over the years is that it isn't this closed off walled garden of you're going to buy all this media and it's been produced by larger companies. And over the years, we've seen that with I feel like podcasts have become more and more of a mainstream thing, which isn't Mm -hmm. necessarily a bad thing because you get more content creators out there, but you also get the situation, which is the same thing that's happening with YouTube, where it's less and less individual creators and it's more these media conglomerates who are Mm -hmm. gobbling up the space. And so I feel like this, this pushes podcasts more in that direction of being a professional closed off kind of thing rather than people being able to go out there and make their own shows and the ones that sink or swim are based on their fan bases yeah one of the things i i I consistently have to you know mention to folks that because i'm proud of it is jimmy aiken's mysterious world is our most popular show on on starquest and we're a network but we're a very small like we're we're really grassroots i mean we're uh we have one regular employee me and everyone else is volunteer and this is not a big we're not making (laughs) big money here folks we're we're scratch we're getting by but that's about it but so mysterious world is in always in between 15 the top 15 and 20 of the apple podcast documentary category and all the other shows around us in in that chart are all big company, big mm-hmm. media company mm-hmm. uh, podcasts. And so the fact is, is that means like you don't have to be a big company in order to be, you just have to produce quality content and, and deliver to your audience and connect with your audience. And that's, that's what I love about podcasting is, is it's, it's democratic. It's, it's grassroots. And I would hate to see it, it really shift toward big publishers, big money and, and leave the, the little guys in the dust. Yeah. Well, because what you see is the music industry right where it's there's the same set of chords the same set of tonalities the mm-hmm. same everything what, whatever sells and then you get into this death spiral of well that's what sells so that mm-hmm. we're going to make more of that well obviously if that's all you're making that's all right. that's going to sell <laughs> <laughs> right exactly need to keep it punk rock um but uh another good thing to remember is a lot of um uh, podcast creators and YouTube creators too, the same kind of thing, you know, indie creators, they will also take donations through PayPal, which if you're doing a YouTube live or something like that, it's good to remember that you can donate through PayPal and the content creator is going to get a larger cut of that than if you're going mm-hmm. through a YouTube system or even sometimes a Patreon system. It really depends. But yeah. if you're interested in getting the most money possible to the content creator, make sure you're checking out their websites and seeing what different options they have for donation just so you can get the maximum benefit from that. Right. Right. That's true. Yes. Yeah, listen to the content creator, how, what works best for them, uh, for, for you know, getting the, the best bang for the buck. So, uh, if, if, if anybody has an Apple podcast subscription that they like, I'd love to hear about it. You know, who's, who's doing, who's doing it right. What's interesting. Um, is it something you'd like to see from Starquest? And if it is, tell tell me why why I, we why we might want to do do something different or explore that. But in general, we want to make sure that anybody, almost all of our content, 
at either right off the bat or eventually is available to everyone, whether you're a patron or not, whether you pay or not. You know, sometimes we give stuff exclusively early to patrons, but we almost always make it available later to the general audience uh, because we're not here just to make money. That's not what we're about. We're here to to, to, for, uh, to share our faith, to share good content, to create a community. And you can't do that necessarily if you're also more concerned about making a buck. And that's, so that's not what we're about. All right, good. Let's, uh, let's move on and talk about our picks of the week. Jack, why don't you uh, tell us your pick this week? Yeah, my pick this week is a system called the Commander X-16. And this is, it's less of a physical product or uh, app you can download at the moment, but it's more of an idea. Um, it's this uh, computer that is currently in development by the 8-Bit guy on YouTube. He's a, a YouTuber oh, who nice. goes into vintage technology. Um, he focuses a lot on Commodore 64 and systems like that. And essentially what it is, it is an 8-bit computer using the Commodore basic programming language, but it's using all modern hardware so you can replace the system as parts uh, need to be upgraded without having to worry about buying a 35 or 40-year-old system off of eBay and wondering if all the caps have popped or if your uh, chips have gone bad. Um, and it's currently in development. It Their goal is to have it be under $99 so you can get into it. Uh, the nice thing about it is, and this is something that I've encountered a lot with wanting to get into these vintage systems that I didn't really have the opportunity to play with growing up, is that it is all actual hardware for an 8-bit system. It is not emulation. So, like, you can buy mm -hmm. a Raspberry Pi or just on your computer, you can download a Commodore 64 emulator and play with the basic code. But it's just not the same as having the actual physical system. Um, and so I would say just check it out. Um, they're taking a lot of support. They're looking for people who have experience in this field to further development. And hopefully sometime later this year or early next year, they'll actually be releasing the system. Um, but if you're interested in vintage computing, it is a really cool uh, project to check out. Um, so that's a Commodore X16 or Commander X16. And uh, they, they do point out that it, while it uses a Commodore basic programming language it, it runs per, commodore basic it's not a c64 emulator it's, it's yes its own that is thing. correct it is it's its own thing um and it's physical hardware it's not emulation that's awesome <laughs> i i love that people are so creative that is so cool and uh thomas what's your pick this week all right so mine's a little bit focused nerdy but um i've been playing a lot of minecraft lately uh, a lot of modded minecraft i should say lately and one of the problems you run into is uh, if you are like me and you have three different modded versions of Minecraft that you're running, uh, it can get a little cumbersome to do it. So uh, there's this great program that was written called MultiMC. Uh, and I, I recommend it for everyone, even if you're not into uh, like modding your Minecraft instance or anything like that, because it gives you a lot of really good backdoor uh, information for you know which Java version you're using how much memory your um, Minecraft instance is loading up with. Um, it's very intuitive to use, really, really easy. It's basically just a blank screen. You right-click on it. You say create an instance. You pick which, um, which release of Minecraft you want. Or if you have a downloaded mod pack, you just open the, that mod pack uh, zip file, and it loads it up for you, and it takes care of everything <laughs> there's nothing you have to do and if you want to go in and tweak it you can go in and add more mods to it by just uh, downloading them into that in, inside of multi mc you just go into the instance itself and add stuff to it if you want to so highly recommend it. it's called multi mc uh it, it will replace your t your standard minecraft launcher with this whole new uh bells and whistle systems it's available on on everything so windows linux and um mac awesome nice Cool. I'll have to use that for the, uh, we've been looking at setting up a uh, modded uh, Stargate Minecraft server for the Secrets of Stargate podcast group. <laughs> nice. So I have to look at using that for that system. There you That's go. That's cool. Very cool. All right. So my pick this week is another one of my uh, menu bar apps that I like to use. And this one's called Drop Zone, Drop Zone 4, uh, which is available uh, in the Mac App Store. You can buy it directly from the the programmer the the developer uh it's also available as part of setup so if you have a setup subscription you you're getting it as part of that as well and so what it does is it's it basically is drops down a shelf or uh, a little bit of a window or a grid that 
makes it easier for you to do a bunch of different things. So you can launch applications. You could drop a file. Like, so you say so you have a file that you want to drag into somewhere into your into your the depths of your hard drive. You can drop it on there, and it sort of holds it there on that shelf. Then you navigate to where you want to go, and you pull it off and put it put it in the right place. But you can do all kinds of other stuff to it. And I use this every day, so I I often have to upload. Well, often every day I have to upload podcast files to our content network content delivery network called libsyn that's where our podcast files are served from and so i have several different um drop targets i guess that you call them on my drop zone and they go to different places in our libsyn servers so i just drop it on there boom it's there on the server i can do it for ftp you can do the google drive amazon s3 all kinds of places. I can, I can airdrop. I can also like shorten URLs. All, all I do is I, you know, copy a URL, do the hit the drop zone button, click shorten URL. So it's all of these very quick things. There was a uh, upload YouTube video one that that was there for a while, but stopped hmm. working. So I'm not sure if that's ever going to work again. But it was it was kind of handy for for uploading YouTube videos as well. Um, but it's got a whole lot of different things. I use it for like just a handful of things, but the things it does. It does very well, and it saves me a bunch of time. And so check it out. Go to their site. I'll put I'll the link in the show notes, and you can see examples of the sorts of things you can do. And that's uh, if if you need it, you'll recognize it. If you don't need it, you know, then you'll you'll you you won't find anything that it does for you there. But uh, check it out anyway. All right, I think that will do it for us this time. So we'd love to hear your feedback in our discussion. If you have any feedback, any comments, any questions, let us know by going to the show at sqpn.com slash technology or the SQPN Facebook page, facebook.com slash Media, or send an email to technology at sqpn.com. And you'll find links from our discussion and our picks of the week on our show notes at sqpn.com. Remember to like each episode of Secrets of Tech on Facebook, retweet them on Twitter where we're at SQPN, and leave us comments wherever you find us. Until next time, Jack Barazzini, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of technology. Thanks, Tom. Thomas Enerho, thank you as well. It was nice to be here. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Technology on StarQuest.